Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey everyone, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast, and this is a podcast about everything tennis from recreational recreational to pro tour to history and just essentially anything that I, I kind of feel like talking about in tennis and also relating to news and stuff like that in the tennis world and um, today uh, you might have noticed that there was no um, intro song and the reason for that is because I just kind of wanted to be talking about a little bit more of a, um, a more serious um, subject and the song just kind of didn't really feel like it fit uh, it as much so I'm just going to leave it like that and just going to start it out right over um, just just jump, jump jump right into it um, so in light of obviously very uh, the recent events that have been happening um, in, in the US and uh, that have uh, um, brought up a lot of protests across the uh, Canada and North America in general, and also in the UK, and uh, I've, I believe in Brazil as well, there has been some protests and whatnot uh, regarding um, racism and police brutality and just kind of essentially uh, terrible ways that um, black communities have been treated um, historically and lately in this past couple of decades and in the, in the 21st century. Um, so I wanted to touch a little bit on that because I feel like um, this is a good this is a good moment. It's getting a lot of steam, and uh, I I wanted to I wanted to to participate in this and just kind of like not uh, essentially just being an an ally and um, you know <laughs> helping in some way. And I know this platform is is still really small. Uh, I do have plans for it to maybe one day grow very big. But right now, I don't have that many listeners. For those who listen to me regularly, thank you very much. You, All of you are very important to me. And um, yeah, uh, so I've, uh, I've, done a bu- I've, done, I've done a bunch of research, in fact, actually, right before doing this episode. And the reason why is because, well, I am, I am, an, I am an immigrant, so I'm not uh, familiarized 100% with uh, life in North America from my childhood so there's a lot of things that i've missed and uh, and even in terms of uh, learning in school how do people study um history and whatnot um although i've i've caught a little bit of that in my last year in high school here in canada but i i missed a lot of it and um also i'm because i'm not i'm not a black person even in in canada i cannot be considered well i'm not at all black uh i'm um I am in Brazil. I am considered a very white person, but uh, in in here, I'm just kind of like falling into the label of a Latino, and at least like South American. Like I'm clearly not from here in a sense, like my eth- ethnically. But the the whole thing is, um, I'm still not a black person. I still don't necessarily understand 
the whole magnitude of everything that they live and uh, how do they go about their daily lives with their daily struggles um, in racism. And some of them are actually are small, but if you uh, pile tons of small things together, they end up end up becoming really big. And uh, that's kind of a little bit of what I'm going to be talking about today. Some of them are small problems, some of them are bigger, and uh, it's going to be mostly... Um, about I'm I'm gonna still stick to the uh, tennis subject in the sense that I'm going to um, talk about tennis players who are African Americans. Well, they're not all African Americans actually. They they're black. <laughs> Let's just put it plain like that. It's, they're they're black players. Some of them are um, mixed race. But um, what I'm gonna be focusing focusing on is showing their contribution to the sport, showing how much they have uh, brought to the to tennis from in in the history of the sport even not just not just lately not just uh one single um achievement and whatnot and also um bringing like resurfacing a lot of their struggles as uh as black players on tour as black players in the world of tennis and starting from um the uh, middle of the last century, it's the 1950s to 60s, all the way to to today, and just kind of like listing a few important players, and and yeah, that's it. And uh, but before I do that, uh, I wanted to because I've in, in my research as I found out um, one of the questions that I had in, in my head, and lots of people have it, lots of non-black people really have it, and mostly the white people who are more sense uh, have been more sensitive to this topic as well have been trying to actually do something they have this question in mind it is how can i how can i help and the first person that we go to 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 answer those questions for us is is a black person and um now i'm not saying that this is wrong it's always good to uh, consider in fact you should consider the voices of uh, black people when talking about a subject that is very um very specific about them um but there's also tons of researchers online that we should be looking to uh, educate ourselves with and uh it's not it's not like it's um very difficult to find most of these and even online you're going to find uh reviews and you're going to find black people even uh recommending stuff for you and uh I think it's important, and as as I've uh, gone through uh, asking and talking to to people and reading the comments and whatnot, uh, it it came across one thing is that um, lots of black people are kind of tired of having to explain this so many times, and with the amount of uh, resources that we have at our disposal, it, it actually isn't difficult to understand why it's kind of like something that we should already should already be um, starting to get more into on our own and we should already know about this mostly uh we shouldn't be coming to this conversation completely ignorant um so i'm going to start with uh, a few a call to action which is um from non-black person to non-black person uh one of the things that's very important is not to just put up your black squares and not just use the hashtags and not just well very important not to just share the, the the terrific the horrific videos that you uh watch about um black people dying in protests and how they are mistreated by police and other people um because 
it's 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 traumatic so don't overshare those uh but having calls to action that that means um if when you, in your research you do things and you you share links you share ways that you can help uh in the in the cause and some of them are actually closer than you think um so first of all i'm going to say this i'm going to leave a massive compilation of uh links and uh the actual link uh, list is not going to be that long but it's links that leads that leads to uh other links that you can search for for you to educate yourself and for you to donate and just find ways to 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 help and uh, there's not only uh helping um huge funds like bail funds and uh, the cause for justice for George Floyd. Um, if you feel like you should do it, go ahead. But I also encourage you to look into your commun community and local aspect of your lives and even within your own entourage, like your friends, maybe even family that you might want to be talking to. Uh, and just kind of like helping... Um, get this discussion uh, on the table, get this talk on the table, because um, disagreeing is, is going to happen and it's going to be hard and uh, it, family discussions are tough. It's not easy to just live in the same household and uh, having um, fights over ideological issues. <laughs> But um, at least get it started, get started somewhere and uh, <clears throat> get it, um, get it, Just get it started, essentially what it is. But um, I will still leave a bunch of links that you can look into. Uh, and I would encourage you to um, at least not necessarily just go and like clicking the first link that you see and just go donating. Uh, look at them, read them carefully and uh, see whether you feel like there is a, a better way that you can be directing your energy and efforts and money into something instead of just kind of like... Because another bad problem, bad thing that you can do is... It's just kind of like um, doing a one-time donation and think that this is it, and then you never touch the subject again. That's also something that is not very, very helpful in the in the long run. It's um, so. Um, my main call to action that's going to be in in here in this uh, podcast in this conversation, the one that I can actually talk from experience, is to um, take your time to do research, take your time to take your time to educate yourself on the issues that. Um, a lot of those black uh, groups and black friends and people are putting online and stuff like that. So the online, the uh, internet has a big problem in the sense that things need to be real quick. Uh, our attention span is really short. So Twitter is um, flooded with uh, threads and things and things go really quick, but take your time and read and And take your time to struggle with uh, questions and, and thoughts that you have maybe maybe never took your time to think about before or never heard. Some of them might be really just tough for you to to um, to process. Uh, for example, I watched um, I watched two two uh, black produced uh, black produ productions really on Netflix. One called Thirteenth. Uh, it's a very famous documentary. Lots of people already know about it. I think it's really interesting how they navigate the uh, history of uh, black communities and how they touch even a bigger subject of minorities and just essentially politics without actually um, being biased towards one certain party 
or a political association and affiliation. They kind of point fingers at everybody, which I think is really interesting. Just kind of like a major critique of the United States uh, incarceration uh, and prison system. So I think I, I would really recommend that. And I also really recommend that you just don't stop there. Don't watch a documentary, become an expert in literally anything. Um, and the other thing that I watched is a little bit more of like a tongue in cheek. Uh, it's not, um, it's, it's a fiction. Uh, it's called Dear White People. I watched the first episode of the first season um, this week still. And uh, this one is actually going to be probably hard for you to watch if you're, if you're a white. Because um, at first... It really may bring the first thoughts uh, like reverse racism. And that's already a red flag in a lot of ways, because when you think about this, you have to start to think um, kind of like, what are my emotions towards this? And like, where is this going? Because um, you can just dismiss a claim just um, because you feel like offended in a sense. And I feel like that goes essentially for everybody. But the, the whole problem with the race is that it's happened. it happened throughout centuries you know it's not it's not something that just happened today it's not something that is tied to a single issue um and by the way police brutality and things like that these are not the problem these are symptoms of a bigger problem that needs to be fixed so those are just kind of like the tip of the iceberg they they appear on the surface level but to figure them out is a bigger research like a bigger understanding bigger discussions so I do recommend that you watch this. And for Dear, for dear White People is, is very interesting because um, I, for me, from, from my understanding of what it was from that pilot, um, it was uh, a somewhat exaggerated portrayal of a, of a society, uh, um, but kind of like with a very um, acid humor, very sarcastic humor uh, embedded into it. And the good thing that it showed on it, it wasn't, is that they didn't just show segregation. If you actually look at it, like you take a minute to think about like the characters and what are they navigating through and where are they at, like their um, their uh, their environment, the set, the settings of the the setting of the the series is that they have a lot of depth into it and they have connections with so many more other people other than just kind of like their black association and their, their black movements and their whatever black identities is. It's because one of the problems of racism is kind of making people one-dimensional. It's making um, one entire group of people uh, one-dimensional based on the generalization and the stereotype. And that's incredibly dangerous. So um, I like uh, how what they do with uh, the DIY people in, in that sense. I like the... Uh, I like their sarcasm and the way to portray things like really just kind of like in your face type of thing. So... All of these stuff, I'm going to leave a lot of uh, links for you to educate yourself on the links on my Facebook uh, page. And I don't necessarily know what I'm going to... I think I'm just going to leave it on my uh, link in bio on, the, on my Instagram page for uh, uh, going maybe to my Facebook page where you can see those links. I'll figure it out. But the, the link is, is going to be in bio for, for Instagram. I just don't know exactly where it's going to direct it towards. But... Um, this is still a, a podcast about tennis, and I really think, uh, especially following so many uh, tennis personalities on Twitter and Facebook and on Instagram, you see that uh, another big mistake as well is trying to separate um, things. So if you're a human and you live in a society, which is 
99.99999% of us, of us, things cannot just be separated that easily. Things are connected. Uh, think, people have a voice that um, influence others in, uh, in indirect spheres. For example, um, Roger Federer and Serena Williams, they're tennis players who are really famous, but they're also very influential outside of the sport. They're not just influential within the Grand Slams. It's, their lives uh, doesn't stop when they enter the court and restart when they when they leave they're the same person they have the same beliefs as they're just doing their job so um and they uh also well tennis players also have a voice and some of them are more vocal than others and i think this is important as well for us to um consider and the stories of players is also i think uh calls attention to how we can uh consider sports in uh, racial issues and that's the, the one the topic that we are considering right now and that's the topic that i'm gonna cover with the players that i'm gonna uh, list in here but um it is also connected to various other other issues as i've mentioned before in terms of uh, uh gender issues this, this has never really not been a problem in tennis and other sports and several other things like in terms of class and and money and health issues and stuff like that so you just can't bottom bottom line is you can't separate uh sports from society it's it's a dumb conclusion that you can take society is a is a network of people it's not it's not different boxes that you open whenever at will and they're just completely unrelated um but without further ado in terms of that i don't really the point of here is not necessarily be lecturing people especially because i essentially just started uh delving uh diving dip deeper into um this subject of uh, of race and stuff like that um especially in the united states where it's a place that i have really no connections with i haven't grown up there and north america is a place that i have connection uh, a big connection with but hasn't as i explained is not part of my whole story so it's a it's it's a process of learning and that's why i, I think my main call to action call to action is for you to uh, enter this journey in of uh, learning. Um, so that being said, it's kind of like me directing this podcast message to non-black people in that sense, because this is this is uh, the people that I can relate to, and this is the people that I can well, not that I cannot relate to black people, but this is the people that I share a more similar experience with. So this is this is why I feel like uh, I, this is this should be my my message and this is why i think we should uh, as non-black people be considering to educate and think and taking our time to to learn and to listen this is my this is kind of like how i how i how i take this um subject right now and um yeah but whatever i said in terms of uh uh 13th and uh uh white people and all the links that i'm gonna leave um don't take my opinion for it um I'm just leaving it so that you can go and see for yourself. This is like the most important thing right now. So it's as you see for yourself and that you learn for yourself and that you try to um, listen to black voices about this subject because that's they are in the epicenter of this whole thing, obviously. So now I'm going to go move into the tennis section of this podcast. Um, and... I'm going to be listing a few players, as I've mentioned before, who were 
very influential and who are very influential to uh, tennis and to sports even um, because tennis is a massive sport. It's not uh, not a small sport. It moves uh, a lot of money. In, in, and just to give you an idea, and I think if lots of people must, must, might have seen it, the highest paid athlete in the world right now is Roger Federer. Uh, it's he's um, he's above uh, LeBron James. Is above well, Tiger Woods is not necessarily the big uh, thing anymore, but he's he's the highest paid athlete in the world. He's a tennis player, so that's just to give you an idea. And Naomi Osaka uh, is the highest paid female athlete in athlete in the in the world right now. She's a twenty twenty two year old um, uh, girl from uh, well, I'm gonna talk, be talking about her a little bit later. But he's um, he's black. Um, he's black. She's black. So, um, so yeah, tennis has a lot of influence. That's uh, and that's kind of like setting uh, a little bit of uh, the tone for how we observe the the things that I'm going to be mentioning in this episode of my podcast. And I'm gonna I've I'm kind of going to go a little bit in uh, a historical um, timeline here. Um, it, that does not mean that. Uh, the last player that I mentioned has less importance than the first. It just means that uh, that was for me an easier way to organize this list uh, instead of kind of like trying to figure out like who is more important, who did more, who is better. Otherwise, Serena Williams would be the first in this list probably, but she isn't. <laughs> so from a historic perspective, I'm going to start with Althea Gibson, a player whom I've already mentioned here in my podcast in the, uh, I want to say the first, no, the second episode of uh, of my Wimbledon history, um, um, well, the second part of my Wimbledon history uh, episode type of thing. I don't know. The anyway, it's the Wimbledon part two, the the episode. Um, you can check it out if you want later, but um, not necessarily trying to prove myself here. I just kind of want to uh, get into it. And by the way, this is a topic that is not very easy for me either to to be doing because I guess the biggest fear is that you would be detrimental to the the causes instead of uh, helping but and I really I really hope that this is not the case and uh, I encourage that if you're if you do see and or if you do list here something or see a link that you feel like is really not uh, good for helping in this cause uh, you communicate with me and I uh, will I will be try to take it down, or I will I will modify my stuff, and I will try to make a, an apology statement, something like that. I'll I'll look it into I'll look into it. And by the way, uh, I've seen all of the links. I've uh, I've looked at all of them, and I observed a lot of the links within the links to see what they talk about. So I don't I'm not just like posting something blindly just because I want to have the biggest um, compilation of links ever. So back to Althea Gibson. Um, she was a player in the 50s, 60s, um, so pre-open era. She, if you know anything about, um, black history in the United States, uh, she's from the United States, by the way, she's from uh, Harlem. Um, you know that this was a very, uh, very tough period. There was a lot of things happening, um, in regards to the civil rights movement and stuff like that. And she wasn't free from all that. Like, that's kind of like the first takeaway is that she was living in that society. She wasn't living in the society of glamour and tennis and money, especially because back in the pre-open era seasons, 
um, there was no people couldn't get play, get paid for playing the Grand Slams, which were always the most prestigious tournaments. So that gives you something. She was the winner of eleven Grand Slams, pre-open era, but still. Um, and that gives you an idea. She didn't make a single penny from all, from any of those lands because you couldn't get paid for it. Um, she was the first African American to join the USTA tournaments. She was the first to win any Grand Slam, like any Grand Slam ever, including Wimbledon. Well, obviously, um, she won Wimbledon in 1957 and 58, if I'm not mistaken. And she was also the first African-American to be ranked number one. Keep that in mind because those informations are something that nowadays would be like, these, these people would be heroes. But let's keep going. Um, she, she had a tough childhood and uh, her father initially, she, she was very good in sports. Her father taught her to, how to box and she liked to fight. And she didn't like tennis because she thought it was a sport for weak people. Um, and her father uh, later physically abused her. Um, all this information that I'm taking from her, I got from uh, a uh, from Wikipedia and from an from an article in the New York Times called um, "Althea Gibson, Tennis Star Ahead of Her Time Gets Her Due at Last." Um, she got a statue in the U.S. Open. Um, and in 1950, in, in 1950, that was one of the, her most her biggest big breakthroughs in her career and uh, as they listed in the the new york times article that i've mentioned uh fans were shouting from the stands she was in the final against um against louise bro uh who brow bro i don't know and uh she was a very prominent player in that time uh she was a white californian girl um who won tons of uh, doubles tournaments and uh, um, singles tournaments as well. So fans were shouting from the stands during that match, that final, uh, for Althea's opponent to um, the, the white girl, uh, Louise, beat the N-word, beat the N-word. That's how they describe it. I'm not going to say it. You you know what I'm talking about. Berth- Bertram Baker, a New York assemblyman, would recall later. During the US Open final. <laughs> yeah, so... Sorry, I kind of like made a bad reading here. So essentially, she was being called racial slurs. People didn't want her to to win. People didn't even want her to start playing in that tournament in the first place. But she made it to the final and she almost won. However, there was a big storm and play had to be stopped. Uh, That's in the US Open, by the way. And uh, um, the next day, they picked up the match and uh, Louise beat Althea in 11 minutes after that. But yeah, that's... The, the problem that she had to face at that time. Um, she was the first black champion in Wimbledon in history in 1957, and she took the trophy. She accepted it from the from Queen Elizabeth's uh, from Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth II or two. I know. Uh, Ticker tape parade up to Broadway in New York fettered her return. Gibson appeared in the covers of Sports Illustrated in the Time that year, the first black woman to do so. That. Is something that I kind of just keep in mind that she was hated before they she was they were crying her uh, they they were crying racist slurs slurs to her and doing that match and now she's being kind of um, driven across town in a in a convertible after winning Wimbledon like come on it's incredible double standards right she had to earn a place in society by being incredible. Um, 
and 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 then she wrote in her autobiography, "Shaking hands with the Queen of England." I always wanted to be. Um, she wrote in, "I always wanted to be somebody." Is the name of her autobiography. Um, Shaking hands with the Queen of England was a long way from being forced to sit in the collared section of the bus. I mean, two realities that you can see. Um, uh, as I mentioned, she didn't even people didn't even want her to play in the tournaments, and uh, her applications to play in white tournaments were often rejected or conveniently "quote unquote" lost. Until in 1950, Alice Marble, another um, prominent American player, winner of 18 Grand Slam titles jumped into the fray and wrote a letter to the American Lawn Tennis Association, which is now the uh, USDA. Um, and the, the letter said, If Althea Gibson represents a challenge to the, pre- to the present crop of women players, it is only fair that they should meet that challenge. The entrance of Negroes, uh, sorry, I said that, um, into national tennis is as inevitable as it has proven to be in baseball, in football, or in boxing. Take the letter as you will. I'm not entirely sure um, the reason for the letter to be written was that she wanted Althea Gibson to have a place. Is that she wanted uh, to... I can kind of like see that she kind of like had this feeling just we can beat her type of thing. It's She's not a challenge. But that's kind of like just how it seems. I may be wrong. I don't want to jump into conclusions, but you, you make your own through that. Um, and then she says, uh, Althea Gibson says, when I came on the scene, the other players wouldn't speak. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, this one is, I just wrote a lot of notes and I didn't have that much time to like properly um, organize too many of them. So I'm sorry for, for, for that. And I'm kind of nervous right now too. So that goes. Um, uh, Althea Gibson had a partner in doubles with whom she played a lot of doubles matches and won a lot of Grand Slams. And her name was uh, Buxton. Uh, frick, I forget her name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go search for it right now. Just a second. Okay, so her name was Angela Buxton. And uh, she was a Jewish player from the UK. And uh, she was essentially the only person with whom uh, Althea Gibson developed a relationship in her tennis career. And that's what Buxton says in... Uh, in the article, that was a quote that they took and put in the article. Uh, when I came on the scene, the other players wouldn't speak to Althea, much less play with her, quite simply because she was black. Buxton, 85, recalled recently. She was completely isolated. I was too because because of being Jewish. So it was a good thing we found one another. And it was good because they developed a relationship and um, they won a lot of tournaments. So that's, that's a lot of... Uh, and. Althea Gibson, one of the things that is most, um, I guess, outrageous about her, something that is like the most distasteful about uh, things that people did with her is that um, up until maybe last year, I think, she didn't have literally anything on her, on in, in terms of, uh, in, in any tennis uh, tournament to honor her career, even though she was the first to do so many things, she she had to fight through racism, had to fight even through sexism at that time as well um, to to be something and in life. At some point in her life, she had she had no money because, as I mentioned, she couldn't make any money from playing um, amateur tennis and all of the 11 Grand Slam singles titles that she won and the plethora of... Uh, 
uh, doubles titles that she won. She didn't make a single penny out of them. Um, so at some point she was really sick and she called Buxton to essentially, as she describes, as Buxton describes, to say goodbye. But then Buxton came to the rescue and um, raised, I believe on Wikipedia it says a million um, pounds or dollars to help her uh, get out of her um, her disease. And also on Wikipedia it says that's because she didn't... Um, the associations didn't want to help her. And, I mean, that's something that is really sad. Like, the fact that... Um, Nothing in the United States had anything to honor her. Now she has a statue on uh, at the U.S. Open, but that's that's the first um, great American, um, great black American player uh, in the world. And well, this is how we honor her, right? So, and moving on to another player that you know by um, the biggest stadium in the world, Arthur Ashe. He won 76 titles, 51 in the open era, and 33 of them are listed on the ATP website. The ATP being um, founded in 1973, I believe, uh, or 72. Um, a lot of things kind of got lost, and the, there's a lot of um, rules into recognizing what is efficient and what is not, and some titles were lost, but, and some rankings are just kind of like debatable. But Arthur Ashe was the first black player selected to the United States Davis Cup team and the only black man ever to win the singles title at Wimbledon, the US Open and the Australian Open. On June, 9th, on June 20th in 1993, Ash was posthumously awarded the Presidential, the presidential Medal of Freedom by the United States presidential, President Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is a name that you're going to see being spoken a lot in the 13th documentary, so keep that in mind and when you watch it, let he, um, Bill Clinton gave him a posthumous medal um, to a black man, but you, if you if you see the documentary, you know what I'm going, what I'm, why this is, why this is a very interesting connection. Um, in 1960, Ash was precluded from competing against Caucasian youth in segregated Richmond during the school year and unable to use the city's indoor courts that were closed to black players and keep adding all those information up in the sense that like when you just black you you don't have access to nothing you have nothing if you've achieved things everybody loves you embraces you and gives you a name in the biggest uh stadium in the world um ash attended uh maggie l walker high school where he continued to practice tennis ron charity brought him to the attention of Robert Walter Johnson, a physician and the coach of Althea Gibson, there she is again, who founded the uh, Junior Development Program of the American Tennis Association, which is a, a black organi tennis organization. Arthur Ashe also had a degree in business administration, so he's a multi-dimensional multi human being, as we can see. Like uh, He's not just a big sportsman person. Um, and in 1988, Ash published a three-volume book titled a hard, Word to, a hard Road to Glory, a history of the African-American athlete. After working with the team of researchers for nearly six years, and Ash stated that the book was more important than any tennis title. Um, I'm interested in this book. I'm probably going to look up uh, and, and read it. And sadly, as I mentioned, he uh, received a... Uh, 
a posthumous uh, award. And that's because in... I don't exactly know when, maybe 1990, he he died from uh, heart complications and he had severe um, health problems. And uh, that actually cut short his career a little bit. And um, yeah. Oh, actually, uh, one of the complications is actually HIV because of uh, many surgeries that he had uh, to had faced um, during his um, heart problems and whatnot in life. And moving on to uh, outside of America and now in Europe, we have Yannick Noah. Yannick Noah is a French player who was born in 18 May 1960. Um, It's a former professional tennis player and singer from France, which I didn't know. Um, there you go, more multi-dimensional multi-dimensionality to to black people. Um, he won the French Open in 1983, which is amazing. Um, and he is he's currently the captain of both France's Davis Cup and the Fed Cup team. Um, during his career, which has spent almost two decades, Noah captured a total of 23 singles titles and 16 titles, reaching a career-high singles ranking of world number three in July 1986 and attaining the world number one doubles ranking in the following month. Since his retirement from the game, Noah has remained in the public eye as a popular music performer and the co-founder with his mother of a charity organization of, for underprivileged children. So you can look up his organization if you feel like donating, I guess. Um... Noah became France's most prominent tennis hero in 1983, becoming the first Frenchman in 37 years to win the French Open, one of the four Grand Slam single status events. Uh, well, is no Roland Garros, Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the US Open are the only Grand Slams, and they have been since probably their institution um, when they when they were founded. Um, he dropped only one set during the two-week-long tournament in 1983. And he defeated the defending champion Sweden's Mats Villander in straight sets in the final 6-2-7-5-7-6. He remains the last and most recent Frenchman to have won the French Open men's singles title. There goes again, like he's the he's a he's a, a jewel in the in the tennis in the fr in in tennis for friends, in French tennis really, so Yeah, and Mats Philander, by the way, in case you don't necessarily know too much about history, Mats Philander, if I'm not mistaken, is a former world number one and a winner of multiple Grand Slam titles. He was an incredible tennis player in the in his time. So that was no um, insignificant victory. So, yeah. Oh, and by the way, he also won the French Open in doubles in 1984. So, yeah. <laughs> Now moving on to back to America, we have Malivai Washington. Uh, Malivai Washington wasn't a Grand Slam winner. He wasn't a top 10 player in his life. Um, and he also wasn't... Um, he wasn't necessarily like one of the biggest legends of, the, of tennis, if you will. But he did a lot. And the fact that he was... Um, as we mentioned, there were two African-Americans in, uh, in the US. And that kind of like just goes to show that And you will see later on in this list that um, black Americans actually make up a lot of the strength of the United States in terms of tennis. And they also, well, from the black communities, we have seen so many of the greatest athletes in the world in all sports, not just kind of basketball and, uh, and football. Like you have Tiger Woods and you have 
well, Althea Gibson, Venus Williams, Serena Williams, Arthur Ashe. So yeah, that goes to show something. That's just kind of like showing the contribution that they have um, in our in our society in the sport that I love so much. Um, so Malivai Washington, as I mentioned, he didn't win a Grand Slam, but he was a Wimbledon finalist in 1996. And he, pretty much his entire family was made of uh, talented tennis professionals. Um, Washington made his debut at a Grand Slam event in 1989 US Open, where he reached the second round. He reached his first Grand Slam quarterfinal in 1994 Australian Open after a win over second-seeded Michael Stich. Uh, Michael Stich is a German player. I believe he's a former number one, and he won Wimbledon once in the first round. And a five-set victory against Mats Villander in the fourth round. In the quarterfinal, he lost to ninth seed Todd Martin in straight sets. Washington's biggest success at a Grand Slam event came in 1996, as I said, uh, when he was runner-up at the Wimbledon Championships. On his way to the final, he defeated ninth seed Thomas Enkovist, another legendary player, uh, in the second round, and came back from a 1-5 set in, uh, deficit in the fifth set of the semifinal to beat Todd Martin, who had defeated him uh, prior. Um, and he lost the final in three sets uh, to Richard Krajicek, the 1996 champion. Um, that was his only Grand Slam title. But it's interesting to note here, like how um, that he he was a big player. He was a big threat. And um, more on him is that he was twice a runner-up in the ATP Master Series events, which are now known as the Masters 1000s. In 1993, Miami Masters, where he lost to Pete Sampras, and in 1995. Essen Masters, where he lost to Thomas Muster. And Washington reached a career-high singles ranking of number 11 on October 26, 1992. So yeah, that was his career isn't necessarily the most uh, incredible career in tennis, but he was an important um, player in the U.S. history as well. And now I finally reached players that we actually get to see playing nowadays, even though it's a little incredible that they play. Venus and Serena Williams, uh, who became both professionals in the late 90s. I believe Venus became a professional in 19, either 97 or 99, well, 98. And Venus uh, and Serena became a professional in 1999, I believe. And we obviously know that their careers need no introduction. They shaped a new era of tennis players. Serena herself won 23 slams, and that's a that's a record in the Open era. The only player who has more Grand Slam titles is Margaret Court, and she won a bunch of those in the pre-Open era time. So uh, there is debate on who actually has the most um, titles in that in that sense. But um, she twice held all four Grand Slam at the same time, not in the same season, uh, mind you. Uh, I don't exactly remember, but that's what we that's what we call nowadays the Serena Slam, um, where she won. I think she started in Wimbledon and then finished at Roland Garros, so she won all of those four Grand Slams in succession twice. Um, she um, has a record of. 319 weeks and number one. Actually, it's not a record. I believe she's behind uh, Steffi Graf. And she held the world number one for 186 consecutive weeks. She has three goals in doubles and one in singles in the Olympics. Um, very impressive portfolio. Um, she was also the world number one in doubles. And she also has a career Grand Slam in doubles. And she won all of them with Venus Williams. 
to tally uh, Serena's um, total to 39. And that she's also behind a bunch of other players. But that's that's not very common to see, especially in the men's tour. Um, a player that is just as good in doubles that, uh, as, he, as he is in, in singles. Um, Venus Williams is a winner of seven Grand Slam titles. She won two US Opens and five Wimbledons, I believe. Uh, or three US Open and four Wimbledons. And one of those Wimbledon titles was against Serena Williams. Um, her sister and I have I've had the privilege of watching them here in Montreal once and I don't remember actually the date that this happened uh, but it was one of the most intense matches I've ever watched they hit the ball so incredibly hard and um, the match went to a third set tiebreaker fantastic you can never ask for more tennis than that um, and they're also not um they were also not uh, free from uh, controversies in terms of uh, racial uh, problems in the U.S. As in 2001 in Indian Wells, um, after Venus had to retire four minutes before the match, which is which sucks, uh, but nothing justifies what comes next. Um, people were screaming to Serena in, from the stands the, in the next match, not the... Um, not the one that she w was supposed to be played against uh, Venus, but uh, I believe it was the final match. Um, people were screaming racial slurs to her. She they were she could hear some of them saying the N word to her and to her family as well, to her dad and to Venus who were in the player box, which is in the stands right next to the court. And this is what Serena had to say. Uh, Serena had to say about this. Um, what got me the most of all. Was that it isn't it wasn't just a scattered bunch of booze. It wasn't coming from just one section. It was like the whole crowd got together and decided to boo all at once. The ugliness was just raining down on me hard. I didn't know what to do. Nothing like this had ever happened to me. What was most surprising about this uproar was the fact that the, that tennis fans are typically a well-mannered bunch. They're respectful, they're sit still. And in Palm Springs especially, they tended to be pretty well healed too. But I looked up and all I could see was a sea of uh, rich people, mostly older, mostly white, standing and booing lustily, like some kind of genteel lynch mob. I don't mean to use such inflammatory language to describe the scene, but that's really how it seemed from where I was down on the court. Like these people were going to come looking for me after the match. There was no mistaking that all of this was meant for me. I heard the word, well, the N-word, uh, a couple times, and I knew. I couldn't believe it. That's just not something that you hear in polite society in that, on that stadium court. Just before this, just before this, sorry? Just before the start of play, my dad and Venus started walking down the aisle to the player's box by the side of the court, and everybody turned and started to point and boo at them. It was mostly just a chorus of boos, but I could still hear shouts of N-word here and there. I even heard one angry voice telling us to go back to Compton. What the heck? It was unbelievable. We refused to return to Indian Wells. Even now, after all these years, we continue to boycott the event. It's become a mandatory tournament on tour, meaning that the WTA can find a player if she doesn't attend. But I don't care if they find me a million dollars, I will not play there again. Um, I believe this was in maybe 2013 or 12. Uh, now she, she, has, she 
she's back on playing uh, in Indian Wells, but it took um, Serena 14 years to come back and took Venus 15 years to come back. So that showing, it was in 2001, it was in the beginning of their careers, um, but still it's it's kind of like the same narrative in the sense that um, people don't like her and call them names. And now they're famous and they're, they're great players and they're legends and now people love them. It's, it doesn't work like that, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, another player that suffered um, with... And that one's actually really really close to uh, the current events is uh, James Blake. Um, former world number one and American number one. Uh, former American number one. Um, he was a quarterfinalist in the US Open, winner of 10 ATP titles. Uh, he was a two-time Masters 1000 finalist in New Wales in Cincinnati. And the 2006 finalist at the ATP Finals, which is, which was called like the Masters, Masters Series, Masters something. I don't even know. I don't even remember. But it's a the year in tournament where the only the eight best players in the world go and play. And he lost to Federer uh, in all of his finals that he played, including the ATP Finals. And I don't remember which ones were straight sets, but I believe the ATP Finals were was and currently he's the tournament director at miami um and for him um for james blake this is what happened to him on september 2015 blake was thrown down to the sidewalk handcuffed and arrested by plainclothes new york city police department officer in front of the grand hyatt new york after being mistaken for a suspect of interest so he was just standing there he had i believe he had his phone on him and um he saw this police officer and this plainclothes uh officer running towards him and he thought he was a fan he thought he was gonna get like an autograph and whatever well get to give an autograph and next thing he knows is that he's on the ground and the officer is on top of him like he has his knees on on his back and he's handcuffed until he was finally released uh because they realized he wasn't him so this is what the Washington Post had to say about this. Um, wait. Well, I think that's Blake saying this, uh, but I read this from the from a Washington Post um, uh, news. If the skate had been ruled in his favor, he may have seemed like a step backwards in that effort if it emboldened the other officers to receive any punishment that he could just sue the victim and intimidate them more after they had already been victimized. That would have been a dangerous precedent, in my opinion. So the point the point is that um, Blake wrote a book, and he um, he kind of like called the the officer uh, motives for being racist in in terms of his arrest, and the officer um, sued him for defamation, and that's why he said all those things. Because the point the point that he's making is, if um, officers can just sue back and win. It discourages people even more from uh, taking action um, when they are treated when they're mistreated by the police. So yeah, um, and now James Blake is an activist to defend minorities against police brutality. And Blake his and his lawyer worked on the city to create a legal fellowship to help citizens with grievances negotiate the legal maze that dissuades many from filing um, official complaints about police mistreatment. As I said. Um, I will post the link for um, for um, a, a recent uh, thing that he said 
mm, I believe a couple of days ago even about this uh about this happening this 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 thing that happened in 2015 and I'm going to move on to another Frenchman um he's one of the most beloved players on tour he is is amazing he has got a massive forehand and great personality uh Joe Fertonga um career high number five. Uh, he's also one of the three players who beat the big four in slams. So only um, three players have been able to beat all um, for all the all of the big four. Uh, that being said, is Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and Andy Murray in the slams. Um, this is no small achievement, by the way. Um, Sanga was also the finalist in the Australian Open in 2008, and he beat Nadal in the semifinals of that tournament. And he lost to Djokovic in four sets in the in the final. He beat Federer from two sets down in Wimbledon. He was losing, I believe, 6-4, 6-4. And then he came back to win um, the next three sets. And at Wimbledon, that's that's pretty fantastic. Like, to beat Federer on grass is... And being two sets to love down is kind of... Well, you, you get what I'm, what I'm trying to say with that, right? Um, and Tsonga... Tsonga and David Nambendi and the Argentinian are the only two players other than the members of the Big Four to have been three, beaten three members of it um, at a single tournament. Tsonga defeated Djokovic in the round 16, Murray in the quarterfinals, and Federer in the final two in the 2014 Canada Masters. And in the final that he played against Roger Federer, if I'm not mistaken, he was down 1-5 in the, in the third set and he came back to win that one. Um, I wasn't as fortunate to watch it, and it was in Toronto. Um, I only watched the highlights of that one as well. So, but I really wish I did. And um, here's what he had to say about um, racism. As a reporter asked him the question, how did races, racism translate into your childhood? And Sangha answers, at the beginning, it starts with little nicknames, then little insults. Afterwards, I remember being the victim of, let's say, abusive checks, especially identity checks in the street when my friends were never checked. I, I was refused an establishment, an establishment while sometimes I arrived with my friends. They said to me, you, you can't get in, but you can. It was difficult to also see my father from time to time in the eyes of others. It was painful for me. At the start of my career, certain sports media called me out, called me out like Joe Tsonga, son of a Congolese father, and I didn't understand why it was so important when I was French. We already had Yannick Noah, the Franco-Cameroonian. Um, but strangely, we never had Pioline, the Franco-Romanian. You don't have to be a genius to know where the error is. There are things that are, there are things that left an sorry, there are things that left an inedible mark on me and will last a lifetime. I met people on the street who would hide their bags and hurt and it hurt me a lot. I mean, it's always the same story repeated over and over again. They're just people and they, they treat it as, as, as criminals, as danger. And then they become famous and now everybody loves them. I mean, um, and now I'm moving on to a very prominent player who is actually being super vocal lately. Um, if you frequent Twitter, Twitter a lot, you might have seen her. Um, Nicole, uh, not Nicole, um, Coco Golf. um, she is a very talented 16-year-old girl who is already a giant killer with a fantastic game. She essentially doesn't play and talk like a 16-year-old. She's incredible. Uh, she won her first WTA main draw match at 14 in Miami. And after losing the second round of a qualifying at the French Open, Goff qualified for the main draw at Wimbledon after entering the qualifying draw with a wild card. 
She upset world number 92, Aliona Bolsova, the top seed in the qualifying draw, in the first round and defeated number 128, Greet Minin, in the third round in the third and final qualifying round while only losing two games. Goff also became the youngest player to reach the main draw at Wimbledon by qualifying in the open era at the age of six, uh, 15 and three months old. In her main draw debut, she upset world number 44 Venus Williams in straight sets. She continued, to her, she continued her run into the first round with victories of Magdalena Rybarikova and number 60 Poland Hercog, and needed to save two match points against Hercog in particular. The hype surrounding her, surrounding her first round match win helped lead, her, helped, helped lead to her third round match being scheduled on center court. She was eliminated with a fourth round loss to eventual champion Simona Halep. All four of her matches were most watched in were most watched matches on ESPN on their respective days. Just giving a perspective of uh, the talent that she has and um, the promise that she holds for the future of tennis in in uh, the United States and even probably in tennis in general. Um, and although she lost in qualifying at Linz Open, she entered the main draw as a lucky loser and won the title. That's uh, in 2017 or 18. Um, notably upsetting top top seed Kiki Burton's in the quarterfinal for her top, for for her first top ten victory. She defeated Elena Ostapenko, a winner of uh, Roland Garros a couple years ago, um, in two in the final to become the youngest WTA player to win a singles title since 2004. At the Australian Open, Goff defeated Venus Williams in straight sets in the first round, Serena Kirstea in the second, and defeating. Uh, and defending champion Naomi Osaka in the third, becoming the youngest player to defeat a top five player since Jennifer Capriati beat Gabriela Sabatini in the 1991 US Open. This was this year in the Australian Open in January. In the fourth round, she lost to eventual champion Sofia Cannon in three sets. That was a massive match. Um, that, this was her second of three majors she played where she made it into the second week. In doubles, Goff and McNally recorded their best results in a Grand Slam to date, reaching the quarterfinals before falling to second seeds and eventual champions Kristina Mladenovic and Timia Bubbles in two sets. Uh, those two players are just incredible doubles players, just to give you an idea. Um, she's also very active on social media, as I said, and um, she's been um, filmed doing um, speeches, uh, during the the protest and she's kind of like encouraging people to um take action and she one of the most uh interesting things that she's done so far is that <clears throat> during blackout tuesday she um roger Federer actually um posted a black square with and the only thing that she that he wrote was uh was hard wasn't he didn't even even write anything she just posted a heart emoji and right under, like uh, the most liked reply, I believe, by it was by her, and she she posted the um, the I think the Black Lives Matter card with a lot of the the um, the links for for people to help and to educate themselves and to donate and and stuff like that. So it was interesting because Ben Rothenberg uh, tweeted retweeted that and said. Um, way to make uh, Roger Federer's tweets tweet useful. And I thought it was kind of like, well, that's pretty true. <laughs> so, yeah, this just kind of like goes to show how active and she is in using her platform. Now moving on to Naomi Osaka, whom I've mentioned as uh, Coco Goff beat her in um, the Australian Open this year. 
Um, Yumi Osaka is a former world number one. She's the winner of the Australian Open and the US Open. And the US Open, she beat uh, Serena Williams in the final. And uh, she beat in the Australian Open, she beat um, Petra Kvitova in the final in three sets. Um, Nomi Osaka never played in juniors and she went straight uh, to the ITF pro tournaments. Uh, the ITF is um, not the WTA. The WTA kind of has uh, their own um, series of tours that are um, the highest level, except for the Grand Slams, which are <clears throat> managed by the ITF. Um, but she never played the juniors. She never played junior tournaments. and But she still managed to um, grow a lot in, because of that. So Osaka qualified... Uh, for her first WTA main draw in 2014 Stanford Classic. In her tour-level debut, she upset world number 19 Samantha Stozer in a tight match, where she saved a match point in the second set tiebreak and came back from a 5-3 deficit in the third set. She was still just 16 years old and ranked number 406 at the time. Osaka also won a match as a wild card in the Japan, Opens, uh, Japan Women's Open, her only WTA main draw of the year. And by that, it means that she didn't have to go through the qualifying. She just got accepted because of the wild card. Um, in 2016, most notably, she qualified for her first Grand Slam main draw at the Australian Open and made it to the third round. In particular, she upset number 21, Elena Svitolina, in straight sets in the second round before losing to number 16, Victoria Azarenka. Victoria Azarenka is, is twice a Grand Slam champion in the Australian Open in 2012 and 2013, I think. Having already reached her first two-career WTA quarterfinal earlier in the year, she then made her breakthrough as a wildcard at the premier-level Pan Pacific Open. She upset number 12, Dominika Sibokova, who's now uh, retired, and she was a finalist in the Australian Open as well, I think. And she also upset, um, uh, Nami Osaka also upset number 20, Zutolina, again, and on, on the road to, to making her first WTA final at the age of 18. At the time, Sibokova was the highest-ranked player she ever defeated. Additionally, additionally, she was the first Japanese player to contest the final at the event since Kimiko Date in 1995. Kimiko Date um, was a player that played... She played until, I think, she was like, um, 43 years old. She had a marathon career. And up to her to the la her last days on, on tour, I think she still won... Um, a tournament and that player's um, career is incredibly um, enduring <laughs> um, so yeah Osaka eventually um, finished a runner-up in the Pan Pacific Open to Caroline Wozniacki and nonetheless she entered the top 50 of the WTA rankings for the first time and at the end of the season she was named a WTA newcomer of the year that was in 2016 she, as I said, she's a Japanese player, and she is the daughter of a Haitian father and Japanese mother, which makes, obviously, her um, mixed race, but honestly, at this point, who isn't? Um, and uh, she can, she lives in the U.S., she lived in the U.S. for, for the longest. She mostly had uh, racial issues um, with her own family in Japan, because Japan is <clears throat> a little bit of a different circumstances in terms of racism. Racism, but nowadays she, as I said, she is the highest paid athlete, female athlete in the world, and most of her, her paintings come, come from uh, Japanese sponsorships. Um, she's also been very vocal in social media despite being extremely shy. And she and Coco Golf are just kind of like um, retweeting each other and defending each other on social media right now. 
and um she kind of Naomi Osaka is kind of kind of calling out players who are kind of choosing to remain silent during this time which is really interesting to see and is a really big step um for her and essentially for uh to set an example for I guess athletes to um take more action and be less silent um and not just kind of like post their um black squares on Twitter and on Instagram um and honestly I'm going to finish this list right here because I've already over I'm already over an hour um in my uh in my recording and uh but I'm not gonna leave you with that I'm just gonna say a few more names of uh African Americans well not African Americans I keep saying that I'm sorry uh black people who have been um incredible players and have still some future in a um and in, in the tours in both the men's and the women's um Taylor Townsend um who was a big hit a uh, very hard-hitting player who also suffered um with uh some controversies about her weight and uh, now we have as well in Canada our own Felix Ojealiasim who is um son of a uh, an African from Togo and I've posted a, a video of him on my um Facebook page and um where he explains a little bit of uh, how he his father had suffered from uh some problems of racism in Quebec City uh with the police that thankfully ended peacefully but you can watch the whole video on his Instagram page or on my Facebook page if you wish to go there um we also have Vic Duval Vicky Duval who is a cancer survivor um Gail Monfils um who is probably the most fun to watch player on tour um is incredibly athletic and you're going to find endless hours of uh hot shot compilations from him uh on YouTube. It's it's worth a watch because some of the shots are definitely insane. Um Francis TFO who uh initiated the Wreck is Up hands down viral video that got Serena Williams, Mon- uh Gail Monfils, Naomi Osaka, Coco Golf, and Tsonga and many others to join in and just kind of like this this video and essentially the 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 point of the video is kind of like the tagline is am i am i next so it's a, it's kind of like a powerful demonstration from him um and there's also Michael Emer from Sweden who is a um quote as a one of the future players of uh in the ATP tour and also we have Françoise Banda in uh, in Canada another Quebecois um black player and There's there's a lot of promise and all of these come from from black people and my goal essentially is to as I mentioned in the beginning is just to showcase how important those people were and are still for our sport that that we love and that we enjoy on a regular basis not right now because of COVID-19 but these people make huge huge contributions and they've made huge contributions to the sport and to society in general and uh they shouldn't be just loved because of what they achieved they should be valued as as people even if they decided to not do any of this and be i don't know regular people like you and i um they have just as much value um and we should respect them for that we shouldn't um treat them differently from uh we shouldn't be, treat people differently from when they're famous And in this case is even more blatant because not only they're not just 
not treated with the prestige that they obviously deserve. They're also treated as less than others they were. Um, Stunga says here, um, well, they weren't allowed to get in places. They weren't allowed to um, mingle with uh, white people and just, you know, they were looked differently um, and in a negative way, not in a positive way. So, yeah, just kind of trying to raise awareness in, in our sport here about how um, it's not only because you say that, oh, yeah, I'm a fan of Serena Williams, that it um, makes you completely immune to um, uh, and excused from the racism problem. We shouldn't be looking at those people as the ones that um, um, that we are, not necessarily that we don't care about them, but just kind of like we should be treating everybody equally and despite all of their achievements if everything was stripped from them they would still have the same value and this is for everybody in your entourage everybody that is that is near you and so yeah i just want to leave this podcast because it's been really a long long time um by saying that um the same things that i said in the beginning educate yourself and um research and look into the links that i put and try to find other links as well or other resources that you can check and um yeah um let's just make sure that this this um that the racism problem isn't isn't just forgotten after this movement and it, it isn't also treated as just um um as if you're saying like that you think that black people are inferior or any other minorities in that in that gen- in that sense is essentially just kind of like the the smaller things you know so um and and the system and how things developed from a historical context as well that brought us all here let us just kind of like um keep looking into this and actually trying to um dive a little bit deeper into the problems and listening to others and why are they why are they saying that this is a problem you know so um you know, just kind of like keep an open mind uh, to this and recognizing that this is still a problem and that we should be keep working on this. And it's not only after somebody dies in the United States that we should have these things uh, sprung up. Um, this is literally kind of the end of the road. Like, honestly, like is having somebody die to sparkle a movement is... Um, it's not that they were not uh, interested in anything else, like the black people that did this. It's just kind of like they were, this is the last drop. This is literally um, enough for them. Like they've had enough. And to have a life be lost because of this is is literally the last drop in the bucket. Like you can, and anyway, I'm, I'm starting to get preachy here and I, um, I am, I'm, I'm bound to make a mistake. So yeah, just go research for yourself and look for good resources. There's a bunch in here that you can check and uh, in the links that I'm leaving. So yeah, thanks so much for, for listening if you stayed all the way up to here. And even if you didn't, if you just check the links, well, if you didn't, you're not listening to this, but yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for, for this. Uh, and uh, even if you did stay here, uh, please do we still check the links because in this episode, the most important one is to actually check these and uh educate yourself is not it's not the listening of my podcast that matters today so um yeah once again thanks so much this was andre and uh, the tennis and bagels podcast will continue next week um bye bye 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 